Hi everybody, Liam here. Just want to give you a quick heads up that today's show is going to be a little bit different. Doing something new today. For the first time ever, I'm running somebody else's podcast on my show. The podcast is the first episode of a new series called Visions of Black Futurity. It's part of SF MoMA's Raw Material program. And the reason I'm doing this is because a big part of this podcast is about exploring the local history of the black arts movement. The show's creator is Babette Thomas, and today's episode will also feature an interview with them. And I don't want to give anything else away because over the next hour or so, you'll be hearing all about Babette. But before we get started, I'll just add one more thing. Usually, my guests on this show are older folks, 50s, 60s. I've even talked to a few people in their 90s. But Babette is only 23 years old, which I think will make them the youngest guest I've ever had on. And I just wanted to mention that because it makes me so happy to see younger people doing this work of preserving and sharing East Bay history. And I think you'll be able to tell just by hearing the excitement in their voice, uh, the passion that Babette has for this project. So yeah, shout out to everyone out there working to keep these legacies alive. Okay, let's jump into the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Welcome to East Bay Yesterday. Can you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about your connection to Oakland? Awesome. My name is Babette Thomas. I'm a radio producer, artist, and researcher. Born and raised in East Oakland. My family's now been here for three generations. And I guess my relationship to it is that it's my favorite place in the world. So we are about to hear the very first episode in your new podcast series that's part of the Raw Materials podcast. Before we play that episode in its entirety, can you give a little context for this show? What is this series going to be about? And what will listeners be hearing in this first episode? The series is called Visions of Black Futurity. And so essentially what it's all about is the local history of black art in Oakland and trying to imagine the future of black art in Oakland. So I think in a sense, it's kind of an Afrofuturist project or an Afrofuturist audio project in the sense that we're going to be looking back at the 60s and 70s and the black arts movement that happened here. I think when people hear about the black arts movement, they often think about the East Coast. But in the 60s and 70s, there was this really rich artistic movement here. And we're going to be zooming in on this one curator named Evangeline Montgomery, who was just a super active Black arts curator uh, during this time. And so we're going to be looking back at the past about at her work and all of kind of the artists that were in her orbit to try and imagine a future of Black art that exists entirely out of museums. So it's going to be kind of this process of turning to the past, seeing what lessons we can take, what we want to imagining what we want to build so there's going to be i think like a lot of imagining and dreaming in this first episode um to try and think about how we can create art outside of the institutions where we're so used to interacting with art and black art i'm so excited to hear this and i have so many questions already about like the whole east coast west coast thing about evangeline and uh, a lot of the stuff you brought up i'm going to be asking you about on the other side of the show. So listeners, uh, stay tuned. We're going to listen to the first episode of Babette's series for Raw Materials, and then we'll come back afterwards with a little follow-up Q&A. Here we go. Is this the most ambitious showing of this kind that's ever been attempted? Yes, in the United States. It's the first time that a black art association has organized and set up their own art exhibit in a museum of this size. Mm -hmm. 
Recently, I've been transfixed by these old KPIX news clips of this woman who worked in the Bay Area art scene during the late 1960s and early 70s. I grew up in Oakland and have always known about the arts in the Bay in a way that feels familial and embodied. For me, it feels like going to DIY shows and galleries downtown and seeing the same graffiti tags off the sides of highways again and again. It's hearing stories of my grandfather, one of the first black bar owners in San Francisco, hosting shows with Etta James and Sarah Vaughn. It's seeing pictures of my Aunt Demira holding signs that read Free Huey during her days as a Black Panther. I know that art and Black survival have always gone hand in hand. And for me, these roots run deep. But when I studied Black cultural production formally in college, I never learned much about where I'm from. My gaze was always directed towards the East Coast, where important things happen. I didn't learn about the Bay Area arts movement of the late 1960s and early 70s. And I didn't learn about E.J. Montgomery. I'm Babette Thomas. I'm a radio producer, and I make a lot of stories about Black history and how it constantly affects the present and future of our culture. And so I often look back on moments of Black utopia, moments in history where Black people were free to be and free to dream. I often lay up at night or during the day when I'm procrastinating on an article, daydreaming of how these types of spaces could exist in the present. In my research, I specifically like to focus in on the stories of Black women who express their artistry in what I believe are genius ways and, in the process, carve out new spaces for themselves. Like Zora Neale Hurston, traveling across the United States, singing back the songs that she learned in her fieldwork in the 1930s. Like queer blues women who created spaces for themselves and their black queer sadness during the Harlem Renaissance. Or singer and actress Edda Moten Barnett, who carved out her own radio show and sonic space, singing across the airwaves in the 1950s. It's easy for me to get obsessive with my research. I spend hours and hours sitting and trying to get a picture of the lives that these Black women lived. And it was on one of these spirals through the SF State online archives that I found this clip of Evangeline Montgomery, also known as EJ. EJ is a short, soft-spoken, and very polished, light-skinned Black woman with coiffed hair, describing a Black art exhibition that she curated right here in Oakland. She's standing in a museum gallery in front of paintings and sculptures, all representing Black people. This clip is from 1968, but the way that she talks about Black art, it also feels like it could be from 2021. What's the States. purpose of having this exhibit? Well, just to show that black artists do exist. Uh, uh, several months ago, I met an African who was in charge of art for his country, and uh, he had been taken across the United States into all of the major museums and schools, and he had not been pointed out any works by any black American artists. And we want the public to be aware that we exist. We want our own people to know that we are here and what, who we are. What EJ was an artist, curator, and arts consultant who was really active in the Bay Area during this period of the late 60s and early 70s. She's being interviewed by what appears to be a white KPIX news anchor. Is this the most ambitious showing of this kind that's ever been attempted? Yes, in the United States. It's the first time that a black art association has organized and set up their own art exhibit in a museum of this size. 
The exhibition is called New Perspectives in Black Art. It ran from October 5th to October 26, 1968, just three weeks in the Kaiser Center Gallery of the Oakland Museum. EJ was 38 when she convened this exhibition with her Black Arts Advocacy Group, Arts West Associated North, or AWAN for short. It's a group that she put together, and it included local Black artists and some of her classmates from California College of Arts and Crafts, where she studied metallurgy. They are all Black artists residing in the United States and in Northern California. Some are professional, some are self-taught, some have master's, even doctorate's degrees from the age of 19 through 79. Now, this news anchor is somewhat grilling EJ with these questions about why black art matters, why it's so important. But EJ manages to remain collected, elegant, and sure of herself throughout the interview as she stands in front of this artistic exploration of what black art meant in 1968. What difference is there between black art and any other kind of art? Oh, I'm not sure that there really is a difference except that the work has been created by black people. Uh, many of them now are looking to their heritage, which may be Africa, Jamaica, and their own communities for subject matter. Like I said, in college, I had learned all about the black arts movement on the East Coast. Spurred on by a sense of developing consciousness, the black arts movement was filled with artists like Amiri Baraka, Barbara Antier, and Sonia Sanchez in New York City. The East Coast black arts movement was a rejection of European artistic norms. Seen as the sister of the black power movement, the black arts movement championed art with a purpose art that served the black community and helped advance a broader freedom struggle. But what I hadn't learned in school is that at the same time, in the 60s and 70s, something similar but unique was happening here on the West Coast, right in my hometown of Oakland. We run in a kind of revolution that involves our very lives and it involves us building what we call people's power starting in the heart of the black community to the Chicano community to the Puerto Rican community. Here in the home of the Black Panther Party, black artists were creating art that reflected the political times and conditions. Because before George Floyd's face went up on murals across the country and all over the world, Black artists in this 1968 exhibition were grappling with the police killings of black boys like Denzel Dowell and Lil Bobby Hutton. They were surrounded by the same conditions of police violence that led the Black Panther Party to be founded in the first place. And EJ's classmates were probably especially keen to the political times. At one point, members of the Black Panther Party actually came to visit their class at California College of Arts and Crafts. And right at the center of all of these intersecting artistic and political movements in the Bay is EJ. When I started researching the Black arts movement in the Bay, I kept running into EJ. She was everywhere in the video archives. Every news clip I looked at from any Black arts exhibition happening at the time, somehow EJ was involved. The show was put together by Evangeline Montgomery. She was an arts consultant at the Oakland Museum. A Black art consultant to the museum. Elizabeth Catlett's lithographs and sculpture was on exhibit at Rainbow Sign in a showing that will run through the end of next month. She was a curator at the famous Black social club in Berkeley called the Rainbow Sign, where the likes of James Baldwin and Nina Simone would convene. Art consultant E.J. Montgomery thinks a program of this kind has been long overdue. Overall, she had consulted over 125 exhibitions for colleges, museums, galleries, and community organizations. And somehow, on top of everything else, she managed to create an arts advocacy group for Black artists where they would meet up in her apartment. Here's Bay Area painter Dewey Crumpler. So she pulled together this organization, uh, invited me to her apartment in the middle of downtown San Francisco, and she put this organization together of a whole bunch of weird uh, hipster uh, 
a black artist, and she used to have these meetings at her place uh, once, once or twice a month. You know, knock out arguments, knock out discussions about damn near everything in those uh, in those uh, heated environments over hip food. I mean, you know, it was a kind of intellectual process that really stimulated me as a young person that this is what the arts are. You know, interesting, intellectually precocious, dynamite people, you know, fine women, great looking men and women, you know, it was woo, a cauldron of, of black creative deep insight. And I was uh, eating up every minute of it as a kid. EJ made it her self-driven mission to work with Black artists in the Bay and create these spaces where they could convene. Black art was her language, and she used it to advocate for the role and work of Black artists and ensure that Black art was accessible to the communities to whom it mattered to the most. With an awareness of the political times and the conditions that Black people were enduring, she convened spaces where art had purpose, art had soul, art served a greater community. And I think for me, the reason EJ's work hit so hard is not only because she worked right in the place where I grew up, but also because at one point, I had dreams of doing something similar. I've always had a deep passion for art. My childhood home in East Oakland, one that my family has now lived in for three generations, is filled with black art, with antiques and weirdly with old racist memorabilia. In every corner of my childhood home, there is some piece of work where I can in some way see myself. To the point where today, one of the scariest things in the world to me is a blank wall. My parents took me to museums growing up because we could afford to. And when it came time to develop my own interests, I was drawn to the same art I had seen and been around my whole life growing up. I came of age on the internet, specifically in the Art Ho era of Tumblr. Art Ho started as an online artist collective of different accounts of Black people who centered themselves within a larger canon of art. Accounts like Free to Cash Flow, Tupac Nose Ring, Sensitive Black Person, Sage Flocka, and To Jam For You. Scrolling on Tumblr when I was 14, I'd see pictures of Black people photoshopped over Van Gogh paintings that would appear again and again, getting thousands of reblogs. Art Ho eventually blossomed into a whole aesthetic movement where Black people were right at the center of artistic discourse. Here are Art Ho creators Mars and Amanda Steinberg back in 2016. Art Ho Collective is basically this collective I founded with Jam, my other partner, where we give marginalized groups a platform to just, you know, feel safe while also like broadcasting their art. We realized that the work of people of color has been institutionally excluded. And so we felt like we wanted to have a space where like kids felt comfortable sharing their artwork. It's kind of become this movement about self-acceptance and self-love as artwork. Art Ho was my first real hand introduction into the sociality and kinship involved in Black art. These artists in 2014 were creating networks and collaborations, not unlike the ones that EJ crafted in 1968. And I craved that kind of artistic community. So when I moved to the East Coast for college, I became set on interning at one of the big time New York museums. I thought museums were the places you went to work if you wanted to be around art and help facilitate people's interpretations of it. I dreamed of using sound and radio to make art inside museums more accessible to a broader public. And eventually I did. I found myself surrounded by shiny white walls and glass cubicles, walking through exhibitions and galleries on my lunch break. But I also found myself being the only black person in my department. In my intern group, we were told that we should feel lucky since we were the first group of people admitted to the intern program who weren't already students in the world's best art history programs. 
I had museum artists asking me how I'd managed to get this job. Ultimately, the capital A, capital W art world didn't feel like the space that I had always imagined it to be. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, museums in the US underwent somewhat of a reckoning. In the last year, people of color have come forward highlighting these systemic violences. There are pages and pages of Instagram accounts dedicated to these folks' stories and how they've been mistreated in museums all over the country. I scroll past them, and it's almost like hearing these choruses of people in whose experiences I see my own. What, what we understand the museum to be, what it has been historically, has been uh, a site of violence and, um, you know, a site of extraction and, you know, a place to a place to put our bones in the basement. Now, black curators, black uh, artists, and any any uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, young, you know, BIPOC artist that wants to be part of this institution or work in this, in, in this institution becomes the sentinel, like put as a front line around it. You surrounded. You know, we have to deal with the public when others do not. I've always felt like I was a, a diversity hire, even when I was brought in. I always felt that way. I'm, I'm a keen observer of people and relationships and behaviors. So the best part of working on the floor or in the front line is me seeing people and them seeing me when they do. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of loss in the black community. So always walking into work and, you know, blown away that the things that are on my mind and heart are not on everybody's minds and hearts, I think is really hard. And having to remind people of what's really happening in the world because we are working in an art museum and that the communication through art for me is most powerful, especially contemporary art, is answering a social call. And so it's always, it's been interesting to me to see how few Black people come through the doors of the museum and wondering how to um, be open and welcoming. So if you don't see Black people in a museum, you know, there's a, there's a reason for it. And it's not about putting a Black face on the museum because people feel that, I think. They can feel when the core is not there for you. I want to be clear. To me, in theory, museums seem like the best thing in the world. They're meant to be places where people commune over art in the broader context of history. They're meant to be open to everybody, for everybody. But we know that's not really how it is. Even at their most basic core, U.S. museums are based on legacies of colonialism, pillaging, and cultural theft. Sometimes it feels like nothing has really changed from when EJ, 50 years ago, was advocating for representation of Black artists within these institutions, and then creating her own spaces and organizations. Since the times when her job at the Oakland Museum was on the chopping block, even though she was one of the most established art consultants in the country. Like I said, I'm someone who spends a lot of time daydreaming, looking to visions of the past to imagine a different future. I think it means that I maintain a somewhat hopeful disposition. It's hope that originally drove me to the East Coast to seek the creative community I had always dreamed of and ultimately finding it in friends and lifelong collaborators. It's with the same hope and vision for the future that I turn back to histories of people like EJ to see how Black artists have historically made spaces for themselves, to understand how we can actually imagine an artistic future outside of museums entirely. What are the Black artistic spaces outside of museums that you dream of? I, I feel like it would have to be a place where you could go and like also be able to connect with nature. It would, it would strongly favor towards people of color. There would be a collective. There would be people that um, felt like they had a seat at the table that often don't feel like they have a seat at the table. And there would be um, it would just be nothing but love, I think. 
this kind of dreaming and imagining a future of black art outside of museums. That's exactly what we'll be doing on this season of Raw Material, Visions of Black Futurity. My name is Babette Thomas. I'm a researcher, radio producer, and artist born and raised in Oakland, California. And I'll be your host on this sonic journey through time. In this season, we'll be looking back at the local history of Black art in California, specifically in the Bay and Los Angeles. We'll be following the story of E.J. Montgomery's life and work, the spaces she made, and all of the legendary Black artists who were in her orbit. Artists like Noah Purifoy, Betty Saar, and Sarah Webster Fabio. Artists who in many ways were so ahead of their time and were constantly doing this kind of active dreaming with an eye towards the future. Artists who had lived during the era of segregation and were determined to take up space. They pushed the boundaries of black art within museums, but also constantly tried to imagine something else, experimenting with creating their own spaces to convene and create. In many ways, we'll be taking up that torch by looking to the past and studying their visions of futurity and trying our best to carry them forward. We'll be taking these tools we learned from the past to dream, imagine, and even build the future of black art, kinship, and collaboration that we so desire, or at least that I desire. Oh, and hopefully by the end of the season, we'll be able to actually find EJ herself. She is an amazing powerhouse that helped to define the creative community in the Bay Area mm. um, she, in, the, in the 1960s and 70s. So when was the last time that you heard from me, Jay, that you spoke with her? Um, probably 25 years ago, 30 years ago. She was in a, in a care facility. Mm-hmm. And... Every time I called, I either got a, just a ringing phone or I spoke with someone who said, you have to call her back at a different time, and it just never worked out. So I have never had an opportunity to talk directly again yeah. to EJ. Thank you for listening to episode one of Visions of Black Futurity. This podcast is a production of SF MoMA. This episode was written, produced, and sound designed by me, Babette Thomas, with editing help from Maisa Plant Graham, Erica Gangsi, Santino Gonzalez, Liza Yeager, and Kevin Carr. The music you heard in this episode is from the illustrious Georgia Ann Muldrow. Be sure to check out her music wherever you listen. We'll be back in two weeks with episode two of Raw Material, Visions of Black Futurity. I'll see you then. Ah, oh my gosh, that was so good. I can't believe you ended on that cliffhanger. I cannot wait to find out more about Evangeline Montgomery and uh, if you were able to, to track her down. But I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't, you know, ask you to give it away. But I do want to ask a little bit more about her, because we got a little taste of Evangeline in this episode. So how did you find out about her? And um, what was that process like of discovering this incredible, you know, woman and artist and, and curator? Yeah. So last year, I, around this time last year, I was working at my beloved KLW NPR member station in San Francisco. And I was specifically reporting on the murals that kind of emerged downtown after the killing of, after the murder of George Floyd. I mean, I think Oakland is a place that's generally known for murals, but after kind of the protests that erupted in response to the murder of George Floyd, so many people just started like spray painting on the plywood that businesses were using to cover up their storefronts to kind of quote unquote protect from looters or protect from protesters, that kind of thing. Um, and I came back home from the East Coast and I was just like, holy crap, like downtown Oakland looks like an art gallery. It looks like a walking, living, breathing art gallery. And so I just became super obsessed with the murals, specifically what was going to happen to them, who painted all of them. And so I was doing some reporting on the murals and I was thinking, okay, I know for a fact that 
the movement for the Black Lives and art have always gone hand in hand. So I started digging for some other examples throughout history in Oakland where people had used art in a similar way to kind of express their grief and their rage. Um, because obviously police brutality isn't a new issue. It's like, this is why the Black Panthers are founded in the 60s. So I was I was digging online through the SF State like diva archives. They have like uh, a lot of old KTVU like television footage. So I was digging online. I was like looking at a lot of stuff from like the Black Arts Movement. And I found this clip of Evangeline. She also goes by EJ Montgomery. And she is standing at this Oakland Museum Kaiser exhibition in 1968 in the old Kaiser building, explaining why Black art is important, why it matters, why it's necessary. And she was just like so composed and so like sure of herself. It felt like it was a clip that could be from like 2021. So then I just became essentially really obsessed with her. Like I feel like I like to think about like kind of my work as a researcher. It's like, I think it's often like based in fandom a little bit. Like I just get really enamored by people and like really want to find out more about them. Um, so that's kind of how I first saw this footage of Evangeline and just became like really intrigued by all of her work in the Bay Area. So in that footage that we just heard in your episode, she's talking about this exhibition, New Perspectives in Black Art, that was briefly on display at the Oakland Museum. What would visitors to that exhibition have seen? What kind of art was on display there? Mm, So there's a really cool catalog that's actually in the Oakland History Room from that exhibition. They would have seen a range of art. So some of the people who were there, there was a range of artists from artists who were 19 to 95, as EJ puts it in that clip. Um, There's one image in particular that I think felt really, really resonant. There's one, it's it's like a painting where it's like a black man, like gunned down, he's like bleeding. And there was like a bird kind of like in like the background. And I'm describing this because I think the art was really like political it was it was art that was really grappling with the political times the kind of same political conditions that the black panther party was responding to so i haven't i don't know exactly like all of the art that was in the exhibition but i think a lot of it was from ej's former classmates at california college of arts and crafts as it was called at the time um it was art that was grappling with the conditions that black people were enduring in West Oakland during the time. I mean my dad that my dad my dad grew up in West Oakland during that time. I'm wondering if you can give a little bit more context too for the like capital B capital A black arts movement. You mention that you learned when you were in college you learned more about East Coast artists. Yes. And then you know you're coming back here doing this research and you learn about this really thriving West Coast scene. Was it surprising to you that in your formal education, the West Coast or the Oakland Black Arts Movement was, it sounds like, kind of ignored or overlooked in favor of this focus on the East Coast? And what are the differences between the two sort of scenes? Mm. I think I was really surprised because I think it ignores, again, the kind of intersections between political organizing and art. I feel as though as we are learning about, like, for example, like I, I studied Africana in college. So, like we are learning about like the origins of like the Black Panther Party, but like, why aren't we also learning more about like Emory Douglas and like the importance of like artistic and material culture to political organizing? Like the two weren't separate. The Black Panther Party used visuals to communicate their political messages, right? And so I think in some ways, yeah, it's very, it's very surprising, but in other ways, it's not super surprising because I think Honestly, so many things originate from the Bay Area that they aren't credited for. I feel like I always go on these rants. I feel like so much like contemporary rap and music is just like either like from the Bay Area or like Detroit and like just kind of the linkages. But that's a different tangent for a different time. Um, Yeah, I would say some of the main difference between the Black arts movement on the East Coast and the Black arts movement on the West Coast is kind of the ways that they navigated institutions. I think the Black arts movement on the East Coast was really interested in kind of like creating alternative institutions. So like Barbara Antier and like kind of creating like her own like theater. While I think on the West Coast, I think these artists were kind of trying to figure out how to move 
in and out of existing institutions, not necessarily creating their own, but instead creating kind of like collaborative groups and spaces to create. But I think it, it felt like a different model than the East Coast, where like there was just like these like big and like well-known institutions that would later, is later what we study, right? I don't think on the West Coast, those things are quite as clear. I don't think mm. like there's like as many institutions or things that we can refer back to. So it, I think it takes a little bit more of like connecting the dots and kind of reading against the grain of being like, okay, well, this person knew this person and they would meet up uh, for dinner and like to discuss like art at this person's apartment, at EJ's apartment. So that's kind of the work that I've been doing. I feel like and I, I think when I think about institutions, I'm like, maybe also like the East Coast Black Arts Movement is like better archived than like mm. the West Coast Black Arts Movement. Because I mean, when you're creating institutions, I mean, that's why people kind of create institutions, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say those are like some of the main differences that I've noticed kind of in my own research. Yeah. And one of the institutions that I'm sure you're going to cover in the series is the Rainbow Sign. Yes. A famous uh, community center, essentially, in Berkeley yes. that hosted black artists. They had all kinds of gatherings. Nina Simone used to perform there. James Baldwin, yes. I think, was a frequent attendee. So can you talk a little bit about how venues like that sort of were an incubator for like this this growing arts movement? Totally. I'm now kind of going back slowly on what I said because I'm like, oh, there wasn't as much of a focus on institutions, but the rainbow sign was absolutely an institution. I just think it's, again, like, it's not something that people who study black arts would necessarily know as much as some of the stuff that was happening on the mm -hmm. East Coast, right? Well, I don't but... think it lasted very long. It was, yeah. like, less than 10 years, I think, that it was in okay. existence. Totally. Yeah. So... Um, specifically, and I mean, this can be, I can give you a little bit of a sneak peek of what's coming in Ooh, the future please. episodes, <laughs> but, um, these were just spaces where black artists and black thinkers and black intellectuals would come together and like commune over like art and food. And I think just having that space to like think and like talk with other artists is like so essential and just as essential as EJ inviting a bunch of people over for dinner like every like few months um, for her organization called Arts West Associated North where she would have all of these black artists over. So in terms of the rainbow sign, it was it was one of those spaces where people could just black people specifically could come together to like think and be in company with other black people. But it was also they had a gallery. So they had a space where art could be on display. And I think the rainbow sign was again one of those spaces that was just really like for the people and about bringing art to the people of Berkeley and like North Oakland. Um, and so this is kind of the little sneak peek for a, a, late, a little bit later in the season. But Betty Saar, who is just like such a famous um, black American artist, grew up in Los Angeles. One of her most famous works is called The Liberation of Aunt Jemima. And now Angela Davis quotes there's a quote from angela davis essentially where she explains that the liberation of, of aunt jemima is what she sees as sparking the black feminist movement and was that a painting no it's kind of so betty Saar is an assemblage artist okay. so the liberation of aunt jemima is this little box where she has a figurine of a mammy um so essentially uh black domestic worker, potentially there's also obviously its roots in slavery, enslaved black women having to not being able to care for their own children, but caring for the white children of their enslavers. So there's there's it's this mammy figure. And then on the in the inside of the mammy figure, there's like this cutout where um, again another mammy figure, another black woman is holding a white screaming child. Except when you start to look closer at the mammy figure, you notice that she has a broom in one hand, which is, okay, that's kind of, those are kinds of the the images that we know of mammies and black domestic workers, right? But then in the other hand, she has a rifle. <laughs> and so it's just kind of this idea of, I mean, like, Aunt Jemima is still an image that we see in the grocery store on pancake boxes and pancake syrup. And so it's kind of an inversion of this image where it's like, no, Mammy fights back. <laughs> so it's like the liberation of Aunt Jemima um, is a piece that, yeah, again, Angela Davis quotes as being really essential, even like sparking the black feminist movement. And 
guess where the first exhibition of that piece was? It was at the Rainbow Sign. And guess who curated that exhibition where it was featured? It was EJ. So I think I just, when when I'm doing research, I think like doing research often just feels like stumbling upon coincidences that aren't coincidences. It's like, that totally makes sense. Like EJ was someone who was so, had such a, eye for art with like a political orientation, I think was just constantly thinking about the conditions of like black people in America were undergoing. So it it totally makes sense to me that she would be the one curating this exhibition of like this super important work in the history of black feminist art and black women's art. And she was the art consultant for the rainbow sign. So we're definitely gonna get into that later this season and just be thinking about all the ways that Black women are, and and it's, it's the same again, the Black Panther Party, Black women are so often the ones kind of creating these spaces and creating these institutions and creating, in the case of the Black Panther Party, like survival programs and all of the things that became so important to the movement. Absolutely. And I think that, as you just mentioned, as historians, our work is sort of to figure out the connections between these different eras and these different movements and how they tie together because nothing ever emerges in total solitude, right? There's always sort of uh, roads kind of connecting different people. And and one example that I'm thinking of now, since we're talking about the rainbow sign, is the fact that Kamala Harris writes in her autobiography about how when she was a young girl growing up in Berkeley, this was one of the places that her mom would bring her and her sister and where they really learned a lot about Black culture and about um, self-determination and really were imbued with the, the politics of that moment. Totally. Totally. I mean, yeah, like, I just think, um, especially when you're doing this research, you just see how small of a world, like the Black Bay Area, like creative and also like political communities really were back then and even today. Yeah. Um, Another artist that you mentioned at the very end of your episode that you're going to be, I'm guessing, sort of delving into more in future future shows is Sarah Webster Fabio. Mm. And kind of speaking of these intergenerational connections, uh, I don't know that much about Sarah Webster Fabio, but I'm much more familiar with her daughter, Cheryl, who I've actually had on East Bay yesterday, a couple years ago to talk about her amazing documentary about the Oakland blues scene, Evolutionary Blues, that features all these incredible uh, blues musicians. And and Cheryl's just an amazing um, artist. And I know that her mom, Sarah Webster Fabio, was sort of like a towering figure in the local black arts movement. Can you give us a little preview of what you're going to be sharing about Sarah Webster? Yeah. So I think I'm really thinking about Sarah Webster Fabio as both an artist and an intellectual. And also think I I think I'm trying to learn how to like think about like intellectuals as also kind of artists. Like I think writers are artists in a lot of ways, but Right, because Sarah Webster Fabio is more of like a poet, right? Or was she more of a writer? I I I wish I knew more about her, but Yeah, so she was a poet a writer and also kind of considered the mother of black studies, which was so wild to me for me to found, find out because I'm I'm a student of black studies. I'm currently in graduate school for African-American studies and I had never really heard of her. But if we're thinking about kind of like the histories and like the origins of like ethnic studies and black studies, it's right here in the Bay Area again with like the SF state protests like during the 60s, right? right? The third World Liberation Movement in Berkeley, yeah. Too. Exactly. And so, and I think, I think, I mean, I think institutions like colleges do kind of play like an important role and kind of, I think people were figuring out how to move in and outside of institutions and how to use them to their advantage. Like everything about Merritt College as the place where Bobby... Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale met, right? And so Sarah Webster Fabio was at Merritt College during this time, during the 60s. And she kind of mused and did a lot of writing about like Black studies and what it means to study Black history. So she was just super... And she has some journal articles that I'm like really like excited to dig into just about um, what it means to study kind of black history and black culture. And like, this is person who was like super foundational to this work. But I mean, I think, I think in my Africana program, I've never heard her cited or I've never heard kind of that being brought back to like Oakland necessarily. So, uh, well, I'm so excited that you're going to be looking more into her career. Cause I do think that she's someone who was extremely influential, but there's surprisingly little about her out there, at least 
uh, information that's easily accessible. Totally. Um, so speaking of these kind of intergenerational influences, when we first started talking about a year ago, the project that you were researching then was going to be a audio walking tour sort of about your dad's history growing up in West Oakland. Yeah. What's going on with that project? Did you learn anything that you can share? And is that, yeah, is that, is that still happening? Yeah, so that is still happening. So that project kind of led into this project. All of my research is so often interconnected that it sometimes feels hard to disentangle it into different projects. Um, I've kind of moved away from the idea of a walking tour and instead I'm thinking more about kind of just like a soundscape that takes you through the different histories of West Oakland, specifically beginning with the indigenous histories of the land. So I did a really amazing interview with the leaders of the Sagorate Land Trust here, which is, I think, the first indigenous-led, women-led uh, land trust in the United States. And I talked to, with Karina Gould about just the intersecting histories of indigenous folks and black folks in West Oakland. So there's an area in West Oakland called ghost town. And she was talking about how, when she hears the, the, the term ghost town, she thinks of her ancestors. She thinks of ghosts dancing like throughout West Oakland, but not just the ghost of her ancestors, also the ghosts of some of like the blues artists who were singing and dancing on seventh street in the fifties and sixties in Oakland. Right. So I'm thinking about how to kind of create a transportive and immersive experience that kind of traverses a lot of history of West Oakland. We're talking like 40, 50 years of West Oakland, which is kind of unheard of in a radio story. Cause I think people usually like to deep dive into one specific era, but I'm trying to think about what it means to put my dad's upbringing in Oakland up against my own and mm. to feel to feel intergenerationally what the impacts of gentrification do kind of to like your psyche and to like just like what it feels like. I think I think I've had some kind of weird experiences in the Bay where like people have tried to tell me kind of the reasons like gentrification isn't necessarily so bad or like, for example, there's been like a lot of like, uh, kind of like traffic efforts, like efforts to kind of help the flows of traffic in like Oakland, specifically West Oakland that I think are like very good. Like it's good things that people are not <laughs> being hit. It's good that there are bike lanes, but I, I, I just kind of want to like sit with the feelings of what does it mean to have the place that you grew up change so much, even if it looks like a bike lane, right? Mm -hmm. Like how does a bike lane become a symbol of gentrification? That yes, you know, it's a good thing. And maybe cafes and um, kind of like pumping money into these neighborhoods, like sometimes isn't the worst thing in the world, but that there is something that really hurts. Like I, I feel like people don't often linger when they're talking about gentrification, it's usually kind of about like the the politics and all of these and all of these other factors kind of talking around it. But like, what is the individual perspective of like what it actually feels like intergenerationally and like what it does to people whose families have lived here for a really long time? Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you have mentioned to me that your dad uh, had to deal with housing insecurity issues as well. And um, you know, obviously, that's just such a major primary topic that people in the Bay Area are struggling with right now. It's beyond crisis levels. And so having that history of housing insecurity in your family, how is that influencing how you're approaching these kinds of projects about Oakland and how Oakland mm. is changing in Oakland history now? Yeah, I think the way that I think about housing insecurity is really central to all of this work that I'm doing. I really grapple with the idea of my dad being someone who faced housing insecurity, but achieved a certain kind of upward mobility. So kind of like made it out in a certain way. But the fact that like he still sees people that he grew up with, like on the streets, like today and like when he was at Cal, like he still sees them and he recognizes them. Um, some of the ways that I'm thinking about that is thinking about like mental health and anxiety, like like on a very practical level, like again, like what that does being homeless, like does to you mentally and how that actually like is then passed on and embedded to my DNA and my genes. So even though I have never felt scarcity in my life, that I kind of have this, I, I, I have anxiety. I, I have, I have anxiety and panic disorder. And so thinking about these ways, like I've never faced scarcity in my life, but that these things are very much passed on. So I think that's one of the very like embodied ways that I think about it. Just kind of rewinding a little bit to talk a little bit more about the the Black Arts Movement that you're mm -hmm. covering in this series. 
One of the things that I know that the artists from that era, from the 60s, were sort of fighting for was essentially like inclusion in, you know, bigger museums and other art institutions. And more than 50 years later, here we are, and that struggle is still happening. So I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about how much progress you feel like was made in that area and why it's still so challenging. Right. Yeah, I think these artists in the 60s and 70s, like they were fighting for inclusion. Like EJ founded her kind of arts advocacy group, Black Arts Advocacy Group, um, Arts West Associated North, to fight for better inclusion in museums. Like, yes, she was off kind of creating her own spaces, but she also did work for the Oakland Museum. She was constantly just trying to advocate for Black artists in museums. And I don't think much has changed since that time. That's kind of, I think, my argument, or that's what I'm trying to kind of put on display in this season. I mean, EJ's job was on the chopping block at one point at the Oakland Museum, despite being one of, like, the best art consultants, like, one of the most premier art consultants in the country. There's, like, a news clip that says, like, save Evangeline Montgomery's job at the Oakland Museum. And, I mean, I think we've just seen so many things in, like, the Bay Area art scene where, like, we hear about people being, like, fired, like, Black people being fired or, like, leaving these institutions because of, like just like microaggressions, but all which are things that I guess you'd face at any corporation, but kind of from these places that claim to really serve the public and serve mm-hmm. a broader public and serve a public in the Bay Area. So I'd like to say that like I don't think much has changed. And I think the reasons for that really just lie in what exactly museums are intended to do. And I think that gets back to like, okay, like, where does the model of, like, museums in the U.S., like, originate from? It originates from Britain, right? And so it's this kind of, like, model of, like, museums that is, like, so based in, like, colonialism and pillaging and theft that were, like, kind of brought over to the United States. And, of course, they're different than when they were created, like, a few centuries ago. But if your institution is so much based in, like, the art market and trying to make the most money possible off of art and also kind of guarding collections like yes making them accessible to the public but also like museums are like very guarded like there are guards I think so many people like so many black folks don't feel comfortable in the museums because they feel watched right so it's like I think I think it's not surprising that things haven't changed much because of how museums are supposed to function which is kind of yes to uplift art but also to kind of guard it i mean the art isn't in the streets it's in it's in these buildings that like yes people can access but i think black people often don't feel comfortable in like Mm. even the black people who work there i mean i've worked at multiple museums like that's actually kind of how that first episode like begins is like talking about like my some of my experiences and i'm like a very very privileged person like I've, i've i've navigated like a lot of like white institutional spaces my entire life and even like some of the institutions that I worked at, I felt deeply uncomfortable as a black queer person, so. Yeah, well, I think that these kinds of critiques are very important to sort of highlight and uh, to keep kind of sort of pushing on these institutions. And I also think it's important to point out examples of sort of progress and success. And I'm thinking specifically of the new exhibit at the Oakland Museum about mm. Afrofuturism, which I don't know if you checked out yet because I know you just flew back into town, but uh, I was able to see that on the opening weekend and, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about it and it seemed like that was a pretty impressive example of utilizing all these local artists to participate in this sort of movement that goes all the way back to this era that we're talking about here, the 60s and 70s with Sun Ra filming spaces, the place in Oakland. And uh, there's even a section in that exhibit on the sort of Pullman porters and, and connecting how these, you know, men who were traveling the country on these trains bringing media and art and music across the country were sort of the messengers and how that sort of fits into this frame of Afrofuturism. I'm really happy that you brought that up because I think it's sometimes really easy to get down and be like, oh, nothing has changed and nothing is good. But I have yet to see the exhibition because I did just fly back home, but I'm going to see it on Tuesday. And I think I think the Oakland Museum is one of those museums to me that really feels like it engages and like kind of is in this back and forth conversation with the community in Oakland that like 
feels really exciting to me. And I think if you just look at some of their past exhibitions, like the exhibitions on like sneakers and like the exhibitions on like, just like, I think they capture the culture of like Oakland, like really well. And then also like look at like different parts of California. So I'm really excited for that exhibition. And the podcast is featuring some folks who have who are in that exhibition. So it's definitely something that I mean, I, I think I think it's not a coincidence that the podcast, which is somewhat of an Afrofuturist project, and also like this uh, exhibition are kind of I feel like there's a lot of projects in Oakland where we're like kind of looking back at the history to like imagine a different future. I feel like that is something that feels like very much alive in Oakland right now. I think a lot of people are turning to the history of the Panthers and turning to all of these histories to be like, what now amidst like rapid gentrification and kind of like influx of like lots of new residents. I think that there's like this memorializing and also this kind of looking towards the future that feels really exciting to me in Oakland right now. And I, I can't wait to go see that exhibition because as I said, I've talked to a few artists in it and I'm, I'm feeling really stoked about it. So besides what we've already talked about, what else should listeners expect to hear on the rest of your series? Yeah, so there are seven episodes in the season and they will be coming out once every two weeks. Um, I think audiences can also expect to hear um, from the artists that we're talking about, so whether it's through like archival footage or oral histories, which feels really exciting to me. So I think uh, listeners can expect kind of these blurrings between the past. For I think we're constantly going to be moving through the pl- past, present, and future. Um, and time travel takes work. Like I, I think people can expect to kind of travel through time and um, to have sound design that's going to kind of help you along with that. So some very dreamy sound design. And I hope that it inspires people to think about like what are the kind of spaces that like they dream of? What are the artistic spaces that they dream of? I'm wondering also, I guess, if there's any sort of like galleries or mm. kind of spaces that emerge from that East Bay black arts scene in the 60s or 70s that still are around now or mm. have like sort of mutated into other things. Like, yeah, I'm just like, I'm really excited about hearing more about those connections between the past and the present. Yeah. I mean, I think I, w- I, w- I was speaking with um, the artist Sage Stargate and I feel like Unfortunately, like, the galleries that were almost here like 10 years ago in Oakland don't even exist anymore <laughs> because of gentrification. So I think what you see is, although the same exact institutions might not be around, I think that a lot of the Black artists, there's so many similarities between the artists the artists here in the Bay today and then those in like the 60s and 70s. Like I, I really do feel like there is this kind of like taking up of the torch where I think artists here are really aware of the history and the importance of like the like the land that they're on um both in terms of like its indigenous histories and also like it's like black histories and so although maybe there aren't like the kind of spaces and galleries that existed in the 60s and 70s don't necessarily exist today i think what i kind of like argue what i try to present in the podcast is like there's something kind of brewing and happening here that right now in this kind of like in a similar political moment i think that's like not so dissimilar from let's say like 68 um that i think that's something some there are new things happening here and people are, are creating new spaces both in like san francisco and here in oakland so yeah yeah well i know that a lot of uh Retail spaces closed down during the pandemic. And so with, you know, you ride around Oakland, you see a lot of empty storefronts and hopefully some of those storefronts or other spaces could be utilized. Um, landlords can find artists to, to take up those spaces because it's just uh, so much better to have, you know, activity brewing in those spots. Exactly. Before we go today, Babette, is there anything else you want people to be thinking about uh, in terms of the history of Black art here in Oakland as they're listening to your series on raw materials? Mm -hmm. I think just thinking about, like, the people behind the art, I think this season is really exciting because we kind of have the opportunity to see, like, how some of these, like, artists, like, brains actually work and, like, talking to them. I mean, I think seeing art is one thing, but then I think realizing that, like, art is a super social thing and is it's is honestly it's very shaped by 
who people were talking to at the time that they were creating the art and what were the ideas that they were exchanging. I think we get a small window into that and like the spaces of like black sociality and like kinship that I think kinship is something that's like really, really central to art and also just like black community formations. And so I hope this season is, it's about the art, but I think the reason that it works as a podcast, because you bring up, it's so hard to make a podcast about art is that it's really a window into like, kinship and care and um community building and how people are constantly putting other people on and that kind of stuff so i think that and i hope i hope that that again maybe kind of like inspires other people and sparks people to um kind of build within their own communities as well Awesome. Well, Babette, thank you so much for joining me on East Bay yesterday. Everyone out there download the podcast. It's like going to be on raw materials. The first episode you just heard, more episodes coming soon. This has been great having you. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks so much, Liam. It's been so fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you want to hear the rest of Babette's series, search for Raw Material wherever you get podcasts. And also, I'll be putting a link up to the show on my site, eastbayyesterday.com, along with some photos related to everything you just heard today. Shout out to the whole Raw Material crew. And uh, also, big shout out to everybody that supports this show, East Bay Yesterday, through Patreon. Y'all are keeping this podcast alive, and I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I also appreciate it when folks share this podcast on social media, and if you do that, tag me. There are links to all my social media channels on my site. Last thing, I'm doing boat tours again in 2022, historic boat tours of the bay, and uh, you can check out the update section of my site for a link to tickets to those tours. All right, that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.